Well, hello and welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, part of the Informed Traveler radio show heard each week on Chorus Radio. It's a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. April 9th marked the 156th anniversary of the end of the American Civil War. So in a few minutes, we'll chat with the folks from the Appomattox Courthouse National Historic Site in Virginia, the place where General Lee surrendered to General Grant. And I got to admit, I'm a bit of a Civil War history buff, so I'm very excited to hear more about that. We'll also head to Australia and chat with a travel writer there and get her take on the last year and what kind of COVID restrictions Australians have been coping with. But we're going to start our podcast this week talking about some of the technological advancements being made to assist the travel industry post-COVID. Everything from contactless check-in and thermal technology to digital keys and high-tech sunglasses. So joining us now to give us some insight on all of that is Stephen Janay. He is the Senior Marketing Manager at Skyroam. Their website is skyroam.com. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Randy. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Tell me a little bit about Skyroam and what you do before we get into some of these uh, technologies that impact on the future of travel. Yeah, so Skyroam, uh, we've been around actually for almost a decade now, I believe. Um, but what we do is, you know, we're a mobile Wi-Fi provider. And so uh, we create our own uh, Wi-Fi hotspots, which are portable little devices, uh, handheld, um, that basically become your own little mini portable Wi-Fi router. Um, so what's also unique about Skyrim, though, is we provide the Wi-Fi service as well. So you don't need to go to a local carrier to pick up a SIM. Um, our devices actually have no SIM. Uh, so it's actually some kind of unique technology of our own that we call vSIM. Uh, so you're able to buy the data through our app and use our hotspots in 135 countries um, and not having to ever worry about trying to switch carriers, switch plans just because of your location. So you never have to worry about worldwide Wi-Fi. Yeah. I mean, we cover you know most of uh, Asia, South America, obviously North America and Europe. Um, and what's great about us, too, is that our plans, you know, we have global plans that work seamlessly through every country we're in. So if you want, you know, you have one particular plan and it doesn't matter where you're going, you're traveling between countries. Um, or just going to one country for a while. You don't have to ever worry about trying to switch plans, figuring out different prices for different regions or different countries. Well, that's one technology has an impact on the future of travel. Let's talk about a, a few others. Uh, that's the title of uh, the blog that's on your website, skyroam.com. Uh, how about this? We, uh, we give it some examples of what kind of technology a person just might encounter when they finally do get to travel post-COVID. Let's start with uh, the luggage. New things that are happening with uh, just, a, just a piece of luggage. No longer just a piece of luggage. There's so many different things, pieces of technology they're building into them now. Um, obviously, you know, we've all had the big, seen the big, you know, uh, hard plastic suitcases. Uh, but now the newest ones are coming not only with, you know, great rollers and, you know, great storage, but they're starting to include uh, power banks so you can charge your devices on the go. Um, some of them are including other type of, you know, tracking uh, abilities as well, too. Um, so if you do lose it, it's easy to, you know, easy to find again. Um, and so really just trying to make it again so it's less less multiple devices you have to carry because more things are built into one. Who would think you could have a charging device right in your uh, carry-on luggage? Uh, and then you can get to, well, obviously, we're going to go to the airport on this particular trip. Uh, lots of technological changes at the airport, everything from uh, contactless check-in to, um, you know, you don't even need a, a, a physical boarding pass anymore, right? Yes, you know, I yeah, I rarely ever have to print out something when I go to the airport nowadays. And I think it's, you know, originally, you know, before uh, COVID in, in 2020, you know, I think a lot of it was just 
convenience, you know, saving people time, you know, reducing paper usage, um, allowing people just to be more flexible and kind of on the go. But now, now especially um, after COVID, it's, you know, how do we reduce uh, human-to-human interaction when we don't necessarily need it? But even then, too, you know, out, you know, outside the airport, it's really just about a convenience, whether it be um, going to check in somewhere. You know, sometimes you don't want to go in at regular hours. You don't have the time to meet someone at their convenience. So having this all kind of be automated and online is just makes everything a lot better. Uh, a lot easier when you're traveling. Uh, even at the hotel check-in, I know uh, there was digital key features in a number of hotels. That's already been happening in some chains, but I think we're probably going to see more of that, right? Yes, I think that's going to get more, more and more expansive. Uh, you know, it's it's going to reduce the need for, you know, uh, extra, extra staff, you know, especially when you're at off hours. And, and you know, if, say sometimes you, you fly in somewhere very late. You know, uh, sometimes, you know, nowadays staff have to have, you know, a skeleton crew or at a hotel, but anything you can do to just make it so where you can just get in, get out, um, and again, save time. You know, people, you know, when you're traveling, you don't want to be spending a lot of time having to wait to get in. You're waiting in a long hotel line mm-hmm. just to, you know, check into your place. So it just all of that, you know, it takes away and just, again, convenience and time. And nowadays, even more so safety. Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the cool things, some just fun stuff, uh, high-tech sunglasses. Tell me about these. Well, the, the sunglasses, I think, are just going to get more and more uh, interesting. You know, I think Google was one of the first ones to really kind of come up with that. And I think it's been up and down with the adoption. But if you look at, you know, Snapchat, it's come with their own glasses now. Um, so embedding, you know, embedding cameras to make it to where you're getting that true, you know, person's uh, eye view um, type of uh, ability now. So for it's great for photography. Um, but we're also seeing more and more, whether it be, you know, obviously people uh, know virtual reality, but I think more and more people are being aware of augmented reality. Um, so being able to have, you know, those tiny little screens on your glasses, um, <laughs> being able to, you know, for photos, for socialness, but also I think, you know, eventually it's going to be, you know, uh, like GPS. You know, there's a lot of cars now they are even, you know, using their almost like, they're turning their windshield into a mini screen in front of the driver to display information. And so people have seen that in some of the more modern cars, basically like adding that to your glasses. Now you don't say, Oh, it's your glasses <laughs> going to tell you turn, turn the next street. Or you can be sitting there, you know, with your family and your kids are playing and like, Oh, where's my phone? I don't know where my phone is. Well, great. I just, Press my sunglasses, click, and I got the great photo of the kids. Uh, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's. I'm learning about new stuff every day, it seems like, and uh, technology just keeps growing faster and faster. It sure does. Uh, technology's impact on the future of travel is the blog. You can find it on the Skyroam website, skyroam.com. And Stephen Janay is the uh, Senior Marketing Manager for uh, Skyroam. Uh, appreciate uh, your time, Stephen. Thanks for uh, informing us. Thank you, Randy. Well, April 9th marked the 156th anniversary of the end of the American Civil War. It took place in an area in Virginia known as the Appomattox Courthouse. It is now a National Historic Site run by the U.S. Park Services. So joining us now to tell us the story of the surrender of General Lee to General Grant on that fateful day and about visiting the park itself is Beth Parnitza. She is the Chief of Education and Visitor Experience at the Appomattox Courthouse National Historic Park. Their website is nps.gov. 
slash A-P-C-O. Hi, Beth. Hi, Randy. Thanks for having me on today. Well, I am so excited. I'm a bit of a Civil War buff, and this weekend is the 156th uh, commemoration of the uh, surrender or the end of the Civil War, but it must be quite a weekend going on. Take me back 156 years ago to what was going on. Yes, it is. It's absolutely quite a weekend today and in the past. So, you know, 156 years ago, they didn't have quite the clarity that we do. So, you know, we see it as, uh, well, a lot of times we call it the beginning of the end of the Civil War. And I think folks had a sense, you know, if Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia fell, that it would be like a domino effect and that the rest of the Civil War would slowly come to a close. And that's really what happened. So um, the Appomattox campaign began after the siege of Petersburg, um, Virginia, where basically the two armies had been entrenched for many months um, between some maneuvering and battles that took place there. Those lines fell, and then Robert E. Lee started retreating west. Um, Grant pursued with um, multiple Union armies um, and was able to, after a few small clashes, um, basically catch up with the Army and effectively surround uh, the Army of Northern Virginia. But it took several days, um, but by the morning of April 9th, it became pretty clear that Robert E. Lee was surrounded, militarily defeated, and did not have any other options besides either disbanding his army or surrendering. And he chose to surrender his army um, Lee and Grant met on the afternoon of April 9th uh, to discuss the surrender and to discuss terms. Grant provided very generous terms to Robert E. Lee, um, basically following the Union mentality that Abraham Lincoln had also been encouraging to to let the Confederates up easy, recognizing that reunion, bringing the nation together, was going to be a very difficult task, and that if the military action included a lot of vengeance in terms of these terms of surrender that unification would be a lot harder after the war. So Grant offers generous terms. He allows the men to take their side, the officers to take their sidearms, um, men who claimed their own horses to take their horses home with them, and basically allowed all the men to go home as long as they agreed not to take up arms against the federal government again, uh, instead of sending them to prisoner of war camps or any other sort of again, vengeance measures. Um, Also significant is that the arrival of the Union Army in this portion of Virginia uh, means basically that the Emancipation Proclamation now reaches these swaths of Virginia. And heretofore, it was just a document in the air. But now that Lee has surrendered to grant this space is firmly in Union hands, um, emancipation is a reality for all of the enslaved people in this region of Virginia. And with the fall of Lee's army, you can see how, as other armies surrender and as the war comes to a close, emancipation spreads. So we are also a major stopover in the process of emancipation. So locals began to refer to April 9th as Freedom Day. So we commemorate both the surrender and Freedom Day, um, both really momentous occasions. How many soldiers are we talking about? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there's must have been thousands of people we're talking about that they have to, you know, get the message out to and tell them to to stop fighting. It must have been just almost chaos. Oh, absolutely. So in this situation, you're dealing with for the uh, Confederate Army about thirty thousand men. Um, Lee has 
suffered major losses since his army left their trenches in Petersburg, both through battle and, you know, the results of hard marching. Um, a lot of the men weren't able to keep up or had started to lose hope and went home. Um, Lee himself isn't even totally sure how many men he has on the morning of April 9th. So we know that he had about 30,000 because there's so much bureaucracy associated with surrendering this number of men. Um, and Lee actually, he has a second meeting with Grant on the morning of April 10th. And Grant is going to ask Lee to uh, surrender all armies in the field. And Lee technically has that power, but he defers to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, who wanted to keep the fight going. And he, and Lee then says he really feels he only has the power to surrender the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee asks in turn if he can give his men what we call parole passes that is proof when they go back to their homes that they were surrendered and paroled. So they were taken out of the Army in an honorable fashion. Um, they didn't need to be arrested as deserters when they got home. And so the Union Army actually prints some 30,000 of these little slips of paper, they kind of look like checks mm -hmm. uh, to tell each, basically to give to each Confederate soldier to let them know uh, that they can go home <laughs> and to give proof. Um, and he also allows them to use these slips to use federal transportation, trains, ships, whatever, to get them home faster. Uh, very generous. Briefly tell me the story of Wilmer McLean. It's an interesting story because I also want to know what it's like to visit the park and the whole experience. And time is our enemy here. So tell me just quickly the story of Wilmer <laughs> McLean. I find it just so fascinating. Yeah, Wilmer McLean is, is a wonderful story. So Wilmer, uh, the surrender takes place in the home of Wilmer and Virginia McLean. Um, they also have several children and nine enslaved people also call the McLean home um, and outbuildings their home. Um, Wilmer um, and Virginia had previously lived in the area of Manassas, Virginia, and Wilmer tells lots of folks that the war began in his backyard and ended in his front parlor, <laughs> but the reality is um, that, yes, his wife did own some property around the Manassas battlefield somewhat close by, but he really moved not to escape the war. He moved to Appomattox to get further away from Union officials. Uh, Wilmer was a sugar speculator by trade, and Northern Virginia was not the place to be uh, if you wanted to escape um, <laughs> notice from federal authorities. So he actually moved to Virginia, uh, or moved to Southern Virginia as really happenstance. He's, he's not really a war refugee. He's one of the wealthiest uh, members of the community here in Appomattox. And it's just so happens that he's here and offers his home for the surrender. So what's it like to visit the park now? I, I'm, I'm, like the, give me a, an idea how, how big it is, how much time it would take to, to see everything and, and enjoy everything. Yeah, that's a great question. So the park, I would say, depending on your level of interest, you can spend anywhere from two hours to an entire day uh, or even more um, here. We have, of course, the McLean House, a reconstruction of the McLean House that you can tour uh, we have, however, the, much of the historic village of Appomattox Courthouse is also preserved. We have a reconstructed visitor center with movie and exhibits, uh, you know, and park rangers that you can talk to about what happened here. Under normal circumstances, we also offer guided tours and um, living history presentations, so folks dressed up and, and sharing their experiences, though it's 1865 which can easily take up to four hours just to explore the village here. But we also have, um, at least by summer of 2021, we're going to have about nine miles 
worth of, of hiking trails here. So you can delve a little deeper into our story, get some exercise, and just explore this this region of Virginia. So mm-hmm. we also have multiple pull-offs. You can visit headquarters sites. There's really a lot to see, and we will easily fill an entire day if you let us. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we should uh, stress under normal, normal circumstances. Obviously, we know that with uh, COVID, things are different there. But where is the Appomattox Courthouse, Courthouse uh, National Historic Park located in Virginia? So we are in what is referred to locally as Southside Virginia. Um, we are close. Our closest really major city is Roanoke. Uh, we also are close to Lynchburg, Virginia. But basically, if you know where Richmond is, which is sort of south central, we are two hours to the west. So we are way out there. If you're visiting D.C. or um, Richmond, keep in mind we're still going to be a couple hours away. Um, Virginia is a much larger state than it looks like on the map. Give me some tips. If I'm visiting for the first time, uh, what should I know? And again, we'll assume under normal circumstances. Absolutely. Uh, the, the best thing would be to plan ahead. You know, take a look at what the park has to offer. Check our website. Um, it is nps.gov slash APCO, or you can just Google Appomattox Courthouse National Historical Park, and we should be the first thing that pops up. Um, see what we have to offer if we have any special programs for the day. But otherwise, you know, wear comfortable shoes, dress for the weather. A lot of our experience here is outdoors. Um, If you need any kind of accommodations accessibility-wise, please check our website. We do have different accommodations available, and we're more than happy to help out however we can uh, to make anybody's visit great. You know, and I always suggest um, having a good conversation with one of our park staff. Our folks are so knowledgeable, helpful with answering questions, giving tips from everything from, you know, what else can you see in town to, uh, tell me more about this Wilmer and Virginia McLean people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so you know, make sure you strike up a good conversation. Don't be shy. Our folks are more than happy to help. Beth Parnitza is uh, Chief of Education and Visitor Services, the Appomattox Courthouse National Historic Park in Virginia. It was uh, fun chatting with you, Beth. Uh, I could go on for hours, but uh, time is our enemy here. Uh, appreciate your uh, your insight. Well, thanks, Randy. I appreciate you having me on and hope that folks can come visit someday. Well, it's probably going to be a while yet before we can travel to Australia as international travel is still at a virtual standstill. But I was curious to know as to what life is like these days in Australia and what the past year was like for those in the travel industry. So joining us now to answer some of those questions is Linda King. She's a travel writer, blogger, and author of three travel books. Her website is thesmarttravelista.com. Linda is in Sydney, Australia. She joins us now via Skype. Hi, Linda. Hi, Randy. How are you going? I'm going well, thank you. Uh, Tell me how long you've been involved in the travel industry and, and what got you going? Oh, gosh. Um, I worked in the travel industry for a number of years um, and been a traveller since a child. So I probably reckon the whole of my life I've been involved in travel (laughs) one way or another. Um, But yeah, yeah, one of my passions. So you've been a travel agent, but you're no longer a travel agent now. Now you have your blog and you write, uh, I think, three books you've written now. Yeah, I've got three books. So I have a full-time job, which is in the travel industry, but my side hustle is the writing and um, the marketing and 
yeah, the blogging. So tell me what life is like right now in Australia in the sense of COVID restrictions. You're in Sydney, Australia, compared to what it was like, say, a year ago. And and I'm going to give you the Canadian, my viewpoint from Canada here, at least this is my opinion, that um, I understand Australia was very strict uh, when the uh, pandemic hit. Is that true or is that just sort of rumors that we hear of it as it cr- travels across the ocean? No, what you heard was correct. So as soon as COVID hit, our borders, international borders closed. Um, depending on the state that you lived in, there was a varying degrees of lockdown. So I'm, I live in Melbourne and we had a really extended lockdown where there was curfews, um, where we couldn't go out after, we couldn't go five kilometres away from our um, home. There was only like three or so restrictions or sort of things that we couldn't, we, we could only do. So we could have an hour of exercise. We could go uh, to get food at the supermarket or if it was, say, medical. Um, and that was it. So we're pretty much in lockdown. Um, in Victoria, we had a really, really extended lockdown. Um, and we were all we all worked from home um, for about at least a year. I've only just recently gone back into my office, um, my full-time role. Um, but, yeah, it was very, very strict. Um, anyone that came into the country um, had to go into hotel quarantine. So if it was either an Australian traveller coming back or someone else coming into, the, into Australia, had to do a 14 days mandatory hotel quarantine. So they were basically, like the rest of us, in their hotel room. They were delivered food and that was it. They weren't able to get out. until, And they were, there was COVID tests, obviously, to make sure that they didn't have COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was very strict, so what you heard was correct. <laughs> um, at the moment, our borders aren't still aren't open, um, but there is actually um, in the... They've just announced in the press that we're going to have a travel bubble with New Zealand mm-hmm. starting the 19th of April. Um, so what that'll mean is that any uh, Kiwis coming into Australia won't need to uh, do any quarantine, and we won't need to either. Um, and then they're also talking about having a, a travel bubble with Australia and Singapore, but, yeah, that hasn't been confirmed yet. So, yeah, it's um, been a bit of a year, I would have to say, Randy. Um, <laughs> probably has been with the rest of the world. Um, but, yeah, one thing I think everyone, well, I know myself personally, I've really missed the travel, um, the international travel especially. I had trips planned that had to be cancelled last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so really at the moment, we're lucky we've got interstate travel. So I'm in Sydney at the moment. Um, I can go pretty much to any state. Um, some of the states have got different regulations. So, um, you know, they require you to sometimes do a registration. And we've got big QR codes as well. I'm sure that you, you're probably running on those as well, where you've got to um, get your mobile and, and do the QR code to get into places so they can trace you. Do like... Um, tracing if anyone has an outbreak, you know, is diagnosed with COVID. Um, but, yeah, it's, I suppose, our new normal, <laughs> as it is. Uh, what, was, what was the feeling uh, from the general population when the lockdown hit? Were people in more or less agreement or was there people that uh, protested? Like, uh, did everyone sort of follow along suit? Well, I think at the beginning we were all a bit shocked and I think we were all pretty compliant. Um, the police were out, so when there was curfews, people were getting fined. I think 
as it progressed, so we're talking within the year or so, um, there were protests. There were people were saying, I don't want to wear a mask. This is against my human rights. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and, and I think we've had a few protests now because people know what's happened in the last year and they really don't. They're rebelling against it. So I suppose it would be the same anywhere, Randy, really. Mm -hmm. People have got a percentage that are very compliant and then you've got a percentage that won't be. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got different reactions to that, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, was there government support? I know the travel industry here in Canada has been hit really, really hard, and that's an understatement. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, there were a few government programs, nothing specific to the travel industry here, but uh, did, was there government support for people that lost their jobs, couldn't couldn't work? And, of course, uh, obviously, if you were in the travel industry, that really hit there as well, I, I, I would assume. Yeah. So, yeah, they've had a, a um, social security um, benefit. So uh, a lot of people got stood down in different industries. So I think it came into effect last year. It's only just expired uh, last month. So there's about probably a good 12 months worth of support for people. Um, but now, so, so what that ha what happened with that is it made, it meant that the unemployment rate didn't rise too high. Um, but what's happening now is those people that were on the payments are now being phased off the payments. So we're thinking that probably the unemployment will go up because it was sort of being masked before. Mm -hmm. um, the government have been really good uh, the government have taken control. As soon as COVID hit, they had the health department. They worked really closely with the health department and they used to have broadcasts. We used to get, um, not so much the, at a federal level with the Prime Minister, but statewide. Mm -hmm. We used to get early broadcasts on the TV telling us the status, what was happening. Um, so there, there was a lot of communication around that and the government supported it. Um, but, you know, they obviously don't have an endless pit of money, so they've got to <laughs> cut it off at some point. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what what yeah. are the travel restrictions like in place now? What can you do and what can't you do? And even, like, uh, as far as uh, going to a restaurant or a pub or anything like that? So we can go to, um, as far as in, uh, international, that's out, unless you get a permit. And it's got a, you know, there's obviously regulations around that, um, certain criteria that people are going to meet. So internationals off the cards um, until the 19th of April where we can go to New Zealand, which is technically international. So mm -hmm. that'll be our first, I suppose they're going to test that and see how that goes. Mm -hmm. um, domestically, we can go anywhere. Um, the only thing is if there's an outbreak in any of the states, like we had a recent outbreak in Queensland. Um, so what will happen is if there's a there's COVID outbreak, what will happen is all the borders will get closed from certain states. Um, so Queensland was closed. They had a three-day lock, quick lockdown. Um, they're now their borders are open. But it, it, I think what the government's doing is if there is an outbreak, they then make a decision, snap decision, and then if you're unfortunately in Brisbane or somewhere like that, it means that you either got to get out of there really quick or that you could be stuck in hotel quarantine. So... Touch wood. I'm in Sydney at the moment. Um, <laughs> everything's looking all right. I'm keeping an eye on the news. Um, but you've got to be ready for anything. So if anything happens, you've got to go, right, can I get my flight changed? Can I get back to, to my where I'm, my home is? And, mm. yeah, so it's, you're taking, I suppose, a bit of a risk. I'm taking a bit of a risk coming to Sydney. Um, but you know what? I, I, I did the same in South Australia. I went to Adelaide in December and... 
I got out of there and they had a COVID case. So you, I think you've just got to be lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now, as far as restaurants and things, uh, here you're required to wear a mask in, 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 in when you're entering a restaurant and then once you're sitting, it's fine. Um, yeah. Is it similar there? Yes, yeah. So um, they don't mind if you wear a mask, if you feel the need to wear one. Obviously, you can't wear it while you're eating or drinking. But, yeah, it, there's a lot of people that will wear the masks until they're obviously having something to mm-hmm. eat. But there's no regulation. Um, the main regulation that we've got is on public transport and on um, aircraft. Mm-hmm. You can, you've got to wear your mask the whole time there. Mm-hmm. And So if I landed in Sydney uh, to, tomorrow... Uh, would yeah. I have to quarantine for 14 days still? Yeah, I think so. Any international travellers would need to do that. Um, so, yeah, you, you'd be up for 14-day quarantine. They give you a COVID test, I think. Um, at, not that I've done it, so I'm not sure, but I'm sure that they give you at least one COVID test. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as you're positive, then, yeah, that you're free to go after the 14 days. Uh, so where are you looking to travel next? Uh, I'm assuming probably 2022. Uh, you, uh, do you have your sights set on someplace? I'm, I'm sure you're like many people just chomping at the bit to go somewhere, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I had a Hawaii trip book last year. Um, so I would love to get to Hawaii. Um, but also looking at Europe, probably, maybe the US. I, I haven't, I'm in a sort of a situation at the moment where you don't, you want to plan, but you can't really firm it up because yeah. you just, Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a few ideas, sort of researching. Um, <laughs> but yeah, obviously, I think it'll be a real quick turnaround, maybe a month or two before, um, and then head off overseas. But yeah, definitely, you'll see me running to the international airport. Um, <laughs> I've got to get my vaccine first. Um, we have we're rolling out vaccines in Australia, so. That's one other thing. They won't allow us to travel international until we've had our vaccine. Yeah, so, I think that's uh, the wave of the future. Is uh, You're not going to be able to go very far if you don't have a vaccine. But it remains to be seen. Uh, here's to better times. Linda King is a travel writer and author. She's got three books, travel books, otherwise known as The Smart Travelista. You can find her books on thesmarttravelista.com. It was uh, a real pleasure chatting with you, Linda. Here's to better times. Great. Yeah, you too, Randy. All the best and, yeah, here's to future travel. And that is this week's Informed Traveller podcast. Remember, this is the podcast version of the Informed Traveller radio show heard each week on Chorus Radio. You can find more information on the show at our website at theinformedtraveller.ca. So thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. And if you want to drop me a line, my email is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler. Or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.